You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. New Year, everybody. It is the year in review. I thought it would be fun today to listen to some of the interviews over the last 12 months that I've had right here on If You Don't Like That. We are brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento. Locally owned for over 20 years, New Works has a fix for you. For your plumbing needs and repairs, just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X plumbing.com. I can't thank them enough for their support from day one from doing my podcast that began in October of 20. 2020 has been uh, so much fun. I am grateful for them. I am grateful for you and all of those that have taken the time to listen to my work throughout these 12 months. My first interview in January of this year was Susan Waldman. She was a repeat guest on this podcast. Do you know that of all the guests that I have had on, I've had more people download and listen to my conversation with Susan Waldman than anyone else. She has phenomenal stories. She is the color analyst on radio of the New York Yankees. She works alongside John Sterling. She is a delight. I'm so happy for Susan. She was recently inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. And make no mistake about it, she is a Hall of Famer. When I had Susan on the first time, she talked about going to the Red Sox games with her grandfather and seeing Ted Williams and Johnny Pesky and what a great thrill it was for her. And then she ended up in New York at WFAN Radio, and she was one of the real pioneers of that station. Incredible stories with George Steinbrenner and eventually into the Yankee broadcast booth. I asked Susan about that first time, the first game she was in the broadcast booth at Fenway Park as the Yankees and the Red Sox were going against each other, and she wasn't announcing for the Red Sox, but the Yankees, and I asked her, how big of a thrill was that for you? Well, that's really interesting, because that was not supposed to happen. That was a television game, and and it was on WPIX on Channel 11 here in New York. I was still working at WFAN. I was still covering the team. It's a long time ago, and it was Bobby Mercer and Phil Rizzuto. And Bobby Mercer had eaten in the Fedway press box and got food poisoning. So he left, and the producer said, go get Susan. She'd love doing this. <laughs> so my first broadcast was me and Phil Rizzuto, who wow. I adored, and it was great. Well, listen to this. This is my first 
my first game, we're sitting there, and I had known Johnny Pesky, the late Johnny Pesky, he wasn't, um, since I was a little girl, since I was four or five years old, and I always called him Uncle Johnny. And Phil Rizzuto and Johnny Pesky were best friends back in, in the day when they used to leave the gloves on the field. So jo- uh, Phil and I were telling stories about, you know, the game was going on, I think I gave the score once or twice, but we were just talking about the old days and Ted Williams, and I told Rizzuto that Ted Williams was once told me that the difference between those Yankee teams back then and theirs was Phil Rizzuto. And with all those great hitters, he thought it was Phil Rizzuto. Amazing. And we were talking about that. In the sixth inning, Phil says, oh, I've got some friends here. I'll be right back. You'll be fine. (laughs) And he leaves me in the post by myself. (laughs) Wow. And we're sitting there, and so I'm doing play-by-play and talking to myself. And, you know, talking about when I was a little girl, I sat over there, and, you know, and they, they should, and the producer, whose name was John Moore, just a great producer-director, he kept saying, okay, we're going over here now, and here's a, we're going to do a replay. And I did it, and two innings, la- two innings later, in comes Rizzuto with a box of cannoli. <laughs> and sits down, and we're sitting there, and... <laughs> Booth at wow. Fedway Parks. So yes, it was memorable for for many many reasons. But um, to be able to no, all kidding aside, to be able to sit there where I was when I was a little girl. I mean, and this is the fifties, sure. And I was a tiny little girl, and to be able to be in that booth. That booth was not there, obviously. <laughs> Fedway Park sure. was very different when I was a little girl. But to be there, and there I was telling stories with Phil Rizzuto, like 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 I was part of it. And but I knew all those people. I knew Bobby Dore, and I knew Johnny Pesky, and all of us. And obviously, I knew my my hero, the only one I ever had, was Ted Williams, and I knew them very well from the time I was a child. So there were all kinds of stories that that we could tell. And I think about it now, and it's the most probably the most surreal thing that's ever happened to me. Um, particularly, you'll be fine. I'll be right back. Unbelievable. I would think that the only way you would get Phil out of the broadcast booth if there was a thunderstorm with lightning. I mean, there was. <laughs> Nothing fun- there was nothing funnier than watching a rain delay on WPIX when there was lightning and listening to Scooter. That was an all-time classic. And then he was gone. See, he was at Fenway Park, so he couldn't leave. No, he would leave the booth. Usually it was three people. Usually it was obviously Bill White and Tom Seaver right. and, and, and Phil. So there were a few of them. But it was just me and Phil. And he said, I've got friends here. I'll be right back. Unbelievable. And he did. And he just left me there. But those are those are the kinds of things that um, could happen then, probably wouldn't happen today. But it was, yeah. <laughs> so my first broadcast at Fenway Park. But let me tell you, Grant, um, we go into that booth now. I, I never take for granted where I am when I'm in that booth. Mm. It's just... It's something. I look over, and not, not a lot has changed. I mean, a lot has changed, obviously. But this is a... You know, a park that I was in from the time I was a mm. shy, tiny little child. There's not a, an inch of that place. I don't know. So it's it always, um, you know, it's it's like everybody says. Well, what do you feel when you walk into Fenway Park when they're playing the Red Sox? When I walk into Fenway Park, I'm walking down those corridors holding my grandfather's hand. Mm. That never goes away. When they're at Yankee Stadium, it's just another team. But when I'm in Fenway Park, you know, I know I tell the players things. You know, over there, let me show you that. That's where Ted Williams used to uh, stand when he wanted to see the pitcher warming up. I mean, things that people don't even think about now. I knew all those things because it was all reported and we were all there. And in, But don't forget also, in the 50s and 60s, no one ever went. 
So I'd be in the park, um, and there'd be 500 people in the park. Can you imagine now? Why that is that? I, you, well, I don't seven. understand that. Why is that? Nobody went. Have you ever seen pictures of Yankee Stadium on mid-afternoon games? No one was there. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. I remember yeah. I remember my dad took me to a Yankee game on my 10th birthday, and they were playing the Detroit Tigers on a weeknight. And I remember the game so vividly because we were sitting in the upper deck on the left field uh, line, and there was a foul ball, and my dad took off, and he came back with the ball. And just recently, just years later, I looked up the box score and the attendance for that game, there was only 9,800 people mm-hmm. at that game mm-hmm. I was at with the Yankees and the Tigers on uh, my birthday in 1969. That's how about that? So I get that. Well, That's amazing. No, I, I, I remember that. And the other thing is that I was actually at that game when Ted Williams hit that final home run. I have my ticket and everything. And everybody in the world says they were there. Look at the box score. Yep. 11,000 people wow. were in the park. What, what? And, that's, and that changed in Boston. The Impossible Dream Team of 1967 changed that forever. I could listen to Susan Waldman talk and her stories for hours and hours and hours. Uh, she is a delight. She has uh, been truly one of my favorite guests that I've had on this platform. She is amazing. And once again, congratulations for her induction into the Radio Hall of Fame. I then talked with Mike Pereira from the NFL on Fox, and I have spent quite a bit of time talking about the issues with officials in this country, particularly on the youth level where there just aren't enough officials because they don't want to deal with the aggravation. And I talked to Mike, of course, the NFL on Fox, former NFL referee, former head of the officials, good friend of mine. I've known Mike for a long time. And I asked him about why is that the case? You know, granted, it's, kind of interesting because there's not necessarily a shortage of officials in terms of how many people sign up to officiate. The real problem is they quit. They quit after a year or they quit after two years. And and it's the old sportsmanship issue. And, and it starts at the very lowest level because just think of this. When somebody, somebody decides they want to like try something different and they want to put their butts on the line, they want to get out there in the field and they want to officiate a game no matter what sport it is you go in at the entry level and you you know you've got to get your feet wet and where do they put you they put you in youth sports you know you go into youth football youth basketball whatever and if you look at surveys of people that leave officiating after a year or two it's always the sportsmanship issue and and then you isolate you isolate what group is it that most is mostly responsible, and the answer is always the same. It's the parents, and 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 that's the sad thing that in this in the in the youngest of level that youth football or youth basketball or whatever has got to be so significant with travel teams and all the money that's being spent, and you know the hopes when somebody's ten years old that it's going to turn into a scholarship to Notre Dame. I mean, the pressures now in the lower level are huge. And, you know, they take it out on the officials. And the officials are at their least competent level because they're just starting. And yet they get the most, uh, you know, the most people yelling at them. And, and, you know, we all know it's going beyond yelling. And it's almost become physical. Well, it has become physical in certain situations. So, I mean, that's, that's the number one issue. Look, they don't get paid enough. I mean... You're not doing this for a living. I mean, you're doing it. You're really doing it, quite frankly, because you're a you're an athlete and you're a sports fan and you want you want to work with kids. 
and and all the intentions are really good, but it sours because mm. of the mistreatment. And the mistreatment, you know, go it's it's all the way up the ladder, all the way into the NFL. But it has the greatest effect on the sure. lower levels. And the shortage, Grant, and, and you know, just back here in Sacramento. I mean, golly, we're doing high school football games with four officials. When at times in the in the better days we had six, and you know, games are being played on Thursday and Saturday. And it's not necessarily the number of kids. It's just the fact that there's not enough people to officiate the game. And, and um, I, I, listen, I, I, I like to fight this all the time and try to come up with new initiatives to get young people involved. And that's where the future is. It's the young people. The average age of an amateur official is all the way up to 54 years old. Wow. And, 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 that's, and that's increased for 11 years in a row. The average age is increased for 11 years in a row and the number of officials applying actually and getting out that that number of people getting out after one year that's also increased for 11 years in a row so we're, we're on a diabolical course mm. here to where we we just may not have enough officials period to officiate the games and um it's the kids that will suffer and and um it, it's just i don't know how we change it I mean, I just don't know how we change it. And we have to keep, I keep telling people here in Sacramento, we got to try. Let's get the high school football coaches. How about those kids that have been playing football through their senior year? And they're not going to go on to junior college or, or four-year school. Their on-field career is basically over. But they've been playing yeah. it for a long time. Can we convince them to stay involved with the game and make some money and, you know, Stay involved with the game that they love. We we just have to keep trying because I tell you, it's we're we're in we're in really in a shaky path here. Mike, how come there isn't a zero tolerance policy across this country as it pertains to people in the stands yelling at officials? You yell at an official, you have to leave the venue. I don't understand why that is so difficult. Why can't we have that? Well, it's shouldn't be difficult and it would need to be done i mean you have these positive coaching alliances that are out there that we wanted to put officiating into and they were interested in doing that but it doesn't that's not going to solve the issue and you're right i mean it has to be organizations that stand up to say i mean can you believe in little league baseball that we have people yelling at uh you know parents yelling at umpires and you know what that signals to their son or daughter that's playing it signals that it's okay to yell at, Great point. That, at the at the umpire. Great and, point. You know, I, I don't understand how we just we just can't get into their psyche and say, "Do you know what you're doing? Do you realize how you're acting?" But you know, hey, listen, zero, you know, tolerance would be terrific. Now, who enforces that? I don't know. When the parents pay their fee, you know, I, I've said here in Sacramento, the thing: if you if your kid wants to play. I don't care what sport it is. If your kid wants to play, that's fine. We'd love to have your kid play. But here's the deal for you as parents. You got to go to a class. You got to go to an officiating class that's a one-hour class or a one-hour-and-a-half class. And you have to be uh, – you have to learn the basics of the rules. That's part one. Part two, you must officiate. You must actually go onto the field and officiate a minimum of two games. <laughs> and, and and maybe right. that will enlighten people. Yep. You know, maybe that will enlighten them to the difficulty of the task. Um, that's one thing. And maybe they'll then lay off yelling at the officials because they'll appreciate it more. And number two is, 
hey, maybe some mom or dad gets on the court or gets on the ladder in volleyball or, you know, gets on the pitch in soccer or gets on the field in football and they go, wow, this is kind of cool. This Mm -hmm. is kind of cool. Maybe after my son quits playing, I think I'll become an official. So it could have some dramatic effects, but I I think that, you know, the, 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 the old adage in with those of us that, you know, that have to deal with this. And it's very simple. It's those that scream, those that scream the loudest know the least. Mm. Yep. And very so true. we have to, we have to attack the people that know the least and figure out how to do so. And if we can, if we can give them a striped shirt and a whistle and a yellow flag and say, okay, get out there and officiate this game. I think the results would oh. be rather dramatic. Mike Pereira, NFL on Fox. Good friend, Mike. Happy New Year. Maybe my most favorite interview, and it's difficult for me to say which one is my favorite, but this would be in the conversation. Episode 173, Chris Carino, who is the voice of the Nets. He also works NFL games on Compass Media Sports, and he has a debilitating muscular disease. And I asked Chris what it's like to inform us of his ailment and what he goes through on a day-to-day basis. So let me let me back up and 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 say it, it give you a little background on it as a way of, of, of hitting home what it is. Um, when I was in my early twenties, I was I started falling. You know, I, I'd be walking, I'd step on a crack in the sidewalk, and I my knees would give out. Or um, I noticed some weakness in my arm. My right arm was getting very skinny. I went to a doctor. I, you know, I hadn't been to a doctor in years. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. a young man. Sure. You know, I didn't even have great medical insurance. I was just out of college. You know, I was my parents. You know, had like a I couldn't be on my parents' thing anymore. I was an HMO. You know, but you know, me and my dad were like, yeah, maybe she go to a doctor. Maybe there's you know uh, something he could prescribe a, a vitamin or something. You know, maybe something to check it out. And I just thought I was out of shape. You know, and the doctor says, no, no, no. There's some kind of a there's some kind of a muscular dystrophy here. And it's like, I mean, that is a punch to the gut. It's like, wait a minute. I, the only thing I know about muscular dystrophy is I used to have the telethon with Jerry Lewis and kids in wheelchairs. Like, it can't be what, I, what I'm going through here. And they said, well, there are, there's a few different types of muscular dystrophy. And you definitely have something. I'm going to send you to a neurologist, a specialist. And I was diagnosed with a type of muscular dystrophy and it's called FSHD, which stands for fasciocapular humeral dystrophy. Um, it's a disease that, that sort of slowly eats away at particular muscles in the body, both, uh, the upper body, the lower body, uh, the face. Um, and when I was given the diagnosis, you know, it's, you can kind of live the way you've been living. They tell you there's really nothing you can take or do. Um, so I kind of did that. I, 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 I didn't, I didn't want it to rob me of all these dreams I had as a kid in my early twenties, looking to embark on a challenging career. Um, I said, all right, I'll do what I can do. And it, it isn't until, you know, years later, as it starts to progress and you get a little worse, um, it starts to affect your life a little bit more. And I remember I call it my midlife crisis. I was about 40 years old and my wife, my wife, Laura, who I, we have a son with, and, you know, I, 
she said to me, you know, it's time for you to start acknowledging what's going on. And, you know, you know, I, didn't, I was hesitant to tell anything to anybody. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to even talk about it with close friends. I tried to hide it a lot of times. Um, and, and I always thought, well, when it, one day when I make a name for myself, I'll try and maybe get involved and do something and see what I can do to help people that may have this or other things. And, you know, as I was turning 40 and my wife said, it's time for you to start acknowledging it. And, you know, I kind of looked around what was out there and, you know, there still had been no treatment or cure in the years that I had been diagnosed, but there, there was a way to help people. And that was number one, tell my story which I, I, w- I would hope was going to help younger people who were going through what I had gone through. And then to have a mechanism when I started to tell my story where we could raise money and we can start to f- help fund research. There had been research going on and there was already funding going on with a couple of other organizations, but there needed to be more and maybe draw from another area. Uh, and that being people that were connected to me. So we did that and we started the the Carino Foundation um, and we raised money and all of it goes to research. I don't have a, uh, I don't have an office. I don't have uh, an employee payroll. We just raise money and we give it to researchers. And uh, those researchers have done great work. And what happens is they make discoveries. They advance the science and then hopefully the big money comes in mm-hmm. from the, NR, the, the, the NIH, which is the National Institute of Health. You, you know, we've had a number of our grants that have been able to support labs that then have gotten millions of dollars from the NIH. Uh, so a $50,000 grant here for a project could lead to millions of dollars in research, which then leads to uh, venture capitalists getting involved, pharmaceutical companies getting involved, which then leads to possible pharmaceuticals that can help. So that's where we are. There's been a tremendous amount of advancement over the last you know, decade. And uh, it's important for me to just go around, keep telling my story and hope that maybe it reaches somebody who can help us. And, uh, and then it, it, may be, it may be too late to kind of turn things around for me, but the next generation behind me is, is absolutely going to benefit from this. You're unbelievably proud, and you're not one to complain, but I've talked to a lot of the people that know you well, and the superlatives they use to describe how you go about living your life and your job are amazing. When you travel with the Nets, that's one thing. You do have a support group. You have people that are able to assist you when need be. You're on a private airplane. We know how that works. When you do the NFL... Almost every Sunday, you're flying on commercial aircraft, and it's a whole different ball game. How challenging is that for you? How challenging has it been recently to do your job? Well, I'm, I'm really, I'm really fortunate because I, I work for people who can't do enough to help me, and and I have people around me who who care enough that that want to help me as well, and I'm I'm grateful every day for that, and. It's, it's part of how you get through it. You know, you, you realize all you're, you're, you're grateful and you have gratitude for the people in your life. I mean, um, you talk about the nets. I mean, my, my radio partner, Tim Capstraw is a guy that, you know, 
literally carries my bag, you know, and, and, it, and, and, and will, will, will lift me out of a chair, you know, like that. I need him to do that a lot of times. And I, they talk about one, one time, Mike Breen and, and Van Gundy and, and Mark Jackson, it was a blowout and we were in the building and they, they put the cameras on us and they started talking about this. And, and Mike said, you know, talk about love for your partner. And yeah, that's, that's a bond that Tim and I have um, for the last 20 years. Uh, when it comes to the NFL stuff, yeah, it's, it's more of a challenge. And I, I'm really lucky to be working for a company called Compass Media Networks. And I've, and I've done games in them now for, for 13 years. I've, I'm, I'm blessed. I've worked with Tim Capstraw on the Nets for over 20 years. And, and, on, and on Compass, I've worked with Brian Baldinger for 13 years. And a few years ago, the, uh, the, the man who, who owns Compass, who's been a great supporter of the foundation as well, and, and he was a guy who, when I, when I announced my foundation in 2011, was the first guy to call me. And not only offer monetary help, but but just supporting, you know, emotional help as well. You know, hey, what do you need? What can I do for you? And a few years back, he came to me and he said, hey, I know you're not going to ask me, but would it help you if someone traveled with you? And I said, yeah, it really would. So he said, then done. You know, we'll pay the expenses of somebody to travel with you. Um, and maybe it's somebody that you want to bring in that would, that can help you and also would enjoy the experience, you know? And, uh, and my neighbor, my neighbor, Ira, who lives across the street from me was a, was a new empty nester. His sons had just gone off. had been, you know, one was done with college and other one was headed off and he's a big football fan. And I, and I said, Hey, maybe you want to, you, you know, you want to come on the road with me on these weekends and, have little adventures. We'll, we'll go to Kansas city and eat barbecue and go to Arrowhead and watch games. And, mm. and he was like, absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. You know? And he's been doing that with me for I don't know, four, three, four years now. Um, and he loves it. You know, and he always tells me, Hey, don't ever think this is a, this is a, a burden for me or, or, uh, that you're imposing. Like I, I absolutely love doing this stuff. So, um, yeah, he travels with me, and I taught him how to be my spotter. So we don't hire a local spotter. That's we just, phenomenal. You know, Ira's my spotter. So now I have the same spotter every game, and, and he's my personal spotter as well wow. in life. Yeah. That's so incredible. That's the kind of support, you know, I, I get. And, uh, you know, and, of course, my family when I'm home. I, my wife and my son do a heck of a lot for me, and uh, I'm a lucky person in that regard. I got to tell you, that was a, a fascinating chat that I had with Chris Carino. What an what outlook – what an attitude, and uh, his foundation is phenomenal. And uh, I will invite him back on to talk more about his foundation and his life. Absolutely fabulous. A guy that I have known for a long time, Tim Brando, and he's pretty much done everything in the sports world. As a matter of fact, when I had him on my podcast, uh, and he's been on a number of times, I introduced him talking about all the things that he has done. I said, he's probably done everything except for hockey. And he interrupted me. Oh, no, no, I've done hockey. And I said, okay, wait a minute now. You got to tell me about that. Listen, you'd have to go really into the archives to find it. (laughs) (laughs) But I did do it. Uh, (laughs) And it was in my first year uh, on ESPN. It was the summer of 1985 in Baton Rouge at a place called the Centroplex. It was brand new. And it was an event that was called at that time the National Sports Festival which morphed into the United States Olympic Festival, U.S. Olympic Festival. They called it, 
America's Olympics. Do you remember that? It was a anthology series that um, ESPN got a hold of through the USOC huh. to run in the uh, in the summertime in the off years of the Olympics. So if the Olympics were in 84, they'd have it in 85, 86, 87, not have it obviously in 88 because of the Olympics and so on. It went away in probably the mid-90s, mm. and I was gone by that time. But they asked me to do two-camera hockey. Wow. <laughs> How a, about that? With like a popsicle truck uh, with the controls. <laughs> and uh, and you'll love this. Fred Godelli <laughs> was the, uh, the producer. He was just in the chair for the first time. He had been an AD. Fred is now, of course, you know, a multiple Emmy Award-winning producer of Sunday Night Football. And is uh, just cranking up the Amazon thing with Al Michaels. Uh, this coming, uh, actually, actually, I said two camera. It was one camera. Wow, I'm one wrong. camera. Two, wow, I was giving us way too much credit. I think we did a few shows with two cameras uh, from what we called the Flash Unit, and I did judo, and I did uh, I did table tennis. I did all these, you know, what the beginners would do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim Simpson, the legendary. Jim Simpson of the early, early days of ESPN was hosting. And I'll never forget, I had to find out, um, uh, you know, what the glossary of the sport was because I didn't know. I called some friends of mine that knew hockey. And, uh, they, you know, Tim, don't say, uh, don't say the puck goes up against the wall. They're boards. <laughs> you know, I, I right. literally had to start from the ground up. But gosh, there were guys like Pat Richter playing. Wow, Pat Richter. players at that time, junior wow. players. Wow, uh, uh, Craig Willannon, if you remember that name, unbelievable. Uh, from way back in the day, he was playing. Wow, and you know they had a north, south, east, west team. I, I want to say that all the fans in Baton Rouge got behind the north team because they were wearing purple and gold. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh my gosh! Yeah. But. Uh, a House, which was a, a magazine that was all hockey all the time, did a story on the young broadcaster, the only one that they knew of, that was born south of the Mason-Dixon line, that had ever called hockey. Now, we only did about three or four minutes of play-by-play at one time. I had no analyst, right. so it was just me. Yep. And I was scared to death. Uh, I got through it, and I didn't, you know, I faked it as well as I could. You know, keeping up with the players, that wasn't the problem. Here's where the problem would come up, Grant. And this is why I had to have a spotter that was an aficionado. Instead of writing names down, I put down all of the little items that were glossary items. Like, for instance, if there was a penalty for high stick, you know, or three minutes, he's getting a five-minute major. You know, I need to know that. Right. Because in hockey, when they blow the whistle, if you're not someone that really knows and loves the game and have been around it forever, hell, I wasn't going to know the difference between offsides and icing. I mean, I, I had no way of knowing. So I would tell my spotter, look, just point. Is it is it offsides or is it icing? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> you know, and, and that's how I skated through it. I got through with the show, went back to the hotel. I lived in Baton Rouge at the time. I was still, I was freelancing. I was working in Baton Rouge television at the CBS affiliate. And I was cutting my teeth at ESPN and basically in a lot of ways, I guess, auditioning for a full-time job, which uh, a year later I would be moving up to Bristol and, and doing that. But uh, I went back to the hotel where all of our colleagues were and 
And Simpson said, well, Tim, you did a fine job. And I said, well, Tim, I certainly hope I never, ever have to do it again. <laughs> I love it. Well, I've, never, I, I've never been so happy to yeah. be off the air in my entire life that uh, I was that night. <laughs> you know, Tim Brando really has done everything. The guy, the guy could announce two dogs running across your front lawn. <laughs> Always good catching up with him. A good friend, somebody that I have known for a long time, have so much respect for. Ian Eagle of CBS Sports, TNT, the TV voice voice of the Nets, and he went to the famed broadcasting school at Syracuse University, and I asked him, what was it like? What made Syracuse the best of the best when it came to putting out great broadcasters? So I graduated high school in 1986, and at that point, uh, the reason I went to Syracuse was because of Marty Glickman, Marv Albert, Len Berman, Bob Costas, those names, Dick Stockton as well. Those names just echoed through the hallways at Newhouse, uh, which is the communication school. And the idea of being a sports broadcaster was uh, at at the top of mind for me from the age of nine on. I knew what I wanted to do. So when I started researching schools, Syracuse kept popping up, kept popping up, kept popping up. And then with the advent of the Big East, it it just nailed it for me. The idea of being at the Carrier Dome and 30,000 people watching those games on CBS in the early Big East days, Pearl Washington tossing uh, the ball in from half court and uh, a throng of Syracuse supporters there to greet him in the middle of the floor after winning a, a big game. Uh, that was it. Uh, so I get there and... I don't even know much about the curriculum. I visited and I went through what what every young aspiring college student goes through in terms of the research. But until you're there, you don't quite know. And then I realized that it is partly the curriculum, but it is the competition. And it is the students that are there that have an aptitude for this and an interest in this and everybody that is geared towards trying to pursue this career. And that pushes you and makes you better Mm -hmm. and forces you to really uh, buckle in and buckle up for, for a four years that you've got to get as much out of it as you possibly can. So for me, looking back on it, it was, uh, it was improvement by osmosis and by application, doing it, making mistakes, getting reps, doing play-by-play, waking up early, doing sportscasts, meeting people, connecting. Mike Tirico Mm -hmm. was a few years in front of me and was a huge influence on me. Met him at a high school football game in Syracuse, hit it off. We were both from Queens in New York and eventually interned for him and uh, became a right-hand man in many ways on the television side when he was anchoring locally, and then uh, a radio show that he started with me as the producer and then uh, eventually filling in for him at a professional station. That was my senior year of of college and maintaining a relationship through the years. And little did I know, I knew he was exceptionally talented, Mm -hmm. but little did I know it was going to be the the primetime Olympic host at that moment. Although anybody that worked with him knew that he was destined for big things. But think about that now. I had three years of just being around him, watching him work, talking to him and discussing how he was going to cover a story or put together a sports cast or 
how he was going to phrase something. So that just became this this whole secondary part of of my life at Syracuse. So I look back on it, it was a combination of so many things. Fordham uh, clearly has attracted uh, a lot of talented people, and they continue to pump out really outstanding broadcasters. And you mentioned Marty Glickman. He, he was a connecting point for both Syracuse and Fordham in that he went to Syracuse and had a long love affair with the university. And then at Fordham, he became a coach, yeah. which he loved to do. And when I ended up getting the TV job, my, my second year with that, so I did radio for a year. I got the TV job. The next year, Marty Glickman was the broadcast coach at Sports Channel wow. in New York, which wow. meant I get a chance to go meet him for lunch. He assesses my tape. And uh, away we go. And let me tell you, it was humbling. Uh, The lunch was great, just him telling stories. We we had uh, an Italian lunch near his apartment. Then we go to his apartment. He's got a yellow legal pad, and I'm looking at it. It's filled with notes, and I realize, oh, those are all notes that (laughs) are going to critique me as we start the tape. And he just goes at it. And I walked out of there. I remember, you know, I'm young at the time. I'm 25 years old. I walk out of there. I'm going to head back to New Jersey afterwards. And I'm walking to my car thinking, I, I may need to become a dentist. This may not be, this may not be the career right. for me. Because <laughs> he That's went beautiful. through it with a fine-tooth comb. And uh, look, a, a lot of his stuff was very relevant and helpful and things that I adjusted the funny part, Grant, uh, a few years after that, I, I ended up getting the CBS job, and they had an event at the Lubin House in New York, which is uh, a, a New York City uh, meeting spot for, for Syracuse grads, and uh, it's been been there for, for many, many years. And Dave Pash, excellent mm. broadcaster, yes. was being named the voice of the Orange. And on hand to celebrate this was Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, wow. Marv Albert, and Len Berman, and Andy Musser, and mm. Hank Greenwald, Wow, and Marty Glickman. So this is the first time that I've seen Marty, because Marty left that role at Sports Channel after that season. So this is now yeah, probably four years after the fact, and we're walking through the hall of Lubenhaus and now he's walking towards me. It's just me and him in the corridor and we make eye contact and he nods and I'm working at CBS now a couple of years. And what I'm expecting to hear from Marty at that point, Grant is, Hey, congratulations. I've been you know, watching you. You're doing great. So I get the first half. He says, Ian, I've been watching you. <laughs> and I now lean in to hear the next part of what he's going to say. He says, Lay off the mayo. You're getting jowly. <laughs> oh my God. And that was it. And he just kept walking. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Maybe, maybe dental school is, is a good option again. I'm still young. Oh, that's beautiful. I know my problem now after listening to you. I went to Bowling Green, and my curriculum consisted of 3.2 low-grade beer and frat parties. 
No, really, you know, in Ohio, when I went to college in Bowling Green, if you were not 21, when you went to a bar, and we used to go to this bar called the Broadhouse all the time, then all the hockey players who I did all the hockey games there used to right. hang out, and you would get a stamp if you were not 21 and you could only drink 3.2 beer. It was a very low-grade beer. And I remember the stamp that they put on the top of our hand was multicolored, and at the end of the weekend, the top of my hand looked like a New York City subway map. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, so uh, now I know my problem, but, you know, I always tell young aspiring broadcasters, and I'm sure you do the same, people always ask me, you know, what, what should I do, what should I do, and I always talk about reps. I go, you know, turn the volume down on the TV, blah, blah, yeah. blah. When you and I, and obviously I'm older than you, but we still grew up without cell phones, uh, the capabilities of the internet. We didn't have the ability to listen to Chick Kern do the Lakers or Bill yeah. King do the Warriors growing up in New York. So I always tell young aspiring broadcasters, hey, listen to as many people as you can, which you can do now, but get reps. Just practice, practice, practice. And I, and I say this, I didn't really learn a lot in the classroom. I learned a lot at Bowling Green through my internships, which really paved the way for my career. Was it different at Syracuse? Yeah. Did you look at internships as your real key to really getting the experience you needed coming out of college? I think so. And I think learning how to deal with people and understanding the, the group dynamic and understanding uh, what it's like on deadline and how to perform. Yeah, that's, that's really a big part of my message with, with younger broadcasters. I, I try to articulate a, a few things because, look, you can overwhelm them with information and then they, they just they don't know what to do. Their head is spinning. So the combination of preparation and performance, you got to be prepared. You got to know your stuff. Grant, you lived this for so many years. It, you live it. You eat it. You mm -hmm. breathe it. It's every day. When people say, well, how, much, how long does it take you to prepare for a game? It's impossible to put a number on it because you're consuming material all the time. It's constant. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. If it's something that can help you with a broadcast, then you're all in. So the preparation part goes without saying. The performance part is sometimes where things get lost in, in the shuffle a bit. When the game starts, that is your time to shine. All the things that you learned, all the preparation, you now have to apply it. But don't, don't go overboard. Don't, don't now... Uh, knock me over the head with stats and notes and storylines. It's got to be weaved in correctly. It has to pertain to what you're talking about in the moment. If you're force-feeding information, then you're doing the, the viewer or the listener a disservice. But for that two-and-a-half-hour broadcast on an NBA game or three-hour broadcast on an NFL game or three-and-a-half-hour broadcast on a baseball game or a college football game, whatever it might be, uh, you've got to own it. You've got to have command of that broadcast for that time period. And, and that's where uh, the, the performance part does come in. Uh, the other part of the equation that, that I try to, to mention to, to young broadcasters is you, you still want to be relatable. You, you can't be a broadcast robot or a machine. There has to be some human connection that you make with your audience. And that means you've got to be conversational, it, it, but yet you've got to be authoritative in that presentation. So how do you, uh, how do you connect with the audience if you're just in your own zone, doing your own thing, 
I'm not, I don't, I don't really care. I, I just know <laughs> I'm locked in today. I'm just, yep. no, you have to care because that's part of the job. If, if they're not feeling that connection then you're not doing your job very well. So I, I think you're right in terms of all of the things that are available to young people today. It's amazing. I mean, you could have a radio station from your computer Correct. easily. Yes. You, you could have a TV station from your computer with the cameras now that are on laptops and, and other devices, but you've also got to do it smartly. Practice mm-hmm. doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. You, you have to practice well. You have to do things the right way, develop, and uh, you've got to be your own toughest critic. you, you got to listen back to your stuff. That's, that's another one. I'm sure you get this a lot sure. from, from young broadcasters that tell you, yeah, I don't really like listening to my stuff. It makes me uncomfortable. Well, that's part of the deal, man. You've got to, You've got to be able to look back and watch your stuff and listen and make changes and adjustments and and go in with a critical eye and ear to to get better at this and to improve and to shape it and to polish it and to to hit the the airwaves the next time you do it better than you were the last time. That that's the one thing also that that people sometimes don't understand. You're judged by your last broadcast. Correct. That's what you're judged on, not what you did two years. Oh, you had a great call in 2003. No, nobody cares. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's irrelevant. If you blow the last one, then that's what you're judged on. From one great broadcaster to another and somebody that I've had the pleasure of knowing and calling a friend for several decades. He is the TV voice of the NBA, the TV voice of the Knicks. He's done the Olympics. Uh, he has done the National Football League. It's always great when I can hook up with Mike Breen. Mike, as broadcasters, we pride ourselves in never missing a game. We will do whatever we need to do to be behind the microphone. However, take me back to June when you tested positive for COVID. That choice was no longer yours. How hard was that for you? Um, it, you know, for, for me to say it was hard compared to what people are, are dealing with around the country almost seems silly. But just from a professional standpoint, uh, it was awful. Um, you know, like yourself, Grant, all those years, you just you took such pride in going to work um, every single day, even the days where you felt awful. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we both probably worked NBA games feeling 10 times worse than how I felt. I mean, I, I clearly tested positive, but I really didn't have any symptoms. I had a, a little cough, but other than that, Zero symptoms, and I was stuck in a hotel room for six days in San Francisco. Uh, and then the hardest part was when I turned on the TV, and an NBA Finals game is about to be televised, and I'm not a part of it. It was man, it was hard to watch. I had missed the Finals game since 2006, so it was hard to watch. But you know, the other thing, Grant, it made me appreciate um, how blessed I am to be able to do those games. Um, and you know, I've never taken it for granted, but it, it does, you know, the old phrase absence makes the heart grow fonder. That was certainly the case watching those games. You missed game seven of the Eastern conference finals. And then in the finals, you missed games one and two. Did you know 100% that you would be good to go for game three or was that dicey leading up to game three? No, I, I, I was, uh, I thought I was going to be ready for game one, um, because, you know, I was testing positive twice a day, uh, or I was testing twice a day. Right. And, and not only was it whether it was positive or negative, but there was a, uh, a certain count that came up that if I 
even if I tested positive but had this, this certain number um, that came back, I could still do the game. So before game one, before game two, you know, you like I felt like I was uh, in, in a courtroom waiting for the jury to come back in. Unfortunately, the jury kept finding me guilty twice a day. So, <laughs> right. uh, so game one, I think, all right, I got a chance at game one. Eh. Game two, I think I had a chance at game two. Eh. And it went right up through that. But by the time we got to game three, um, you know, their protocols of, of 10 days since, you know, the whole thing started, um, I was able to go regardless. So it, it worked out. Uh, it finally worked out. But it was, uh, it, was, it was not fun watching the games, Grant. Mike Breen. Ian Eagle, back-to-back, two class acts, two consummate professionals, two great people. You know, when you speak of great people, I've met so many phenomenal, phenomenal people throughout my career. Coaches, officials, fans, athletes. Uh, and then you meet somebody that just kind of like, go, you just kind of go, wow, every time you talk to him. And that person was Ryan Anderson from El Dorado Hills, who went to Cal Berkeley, who was drafted by the Nets, but then went through a tragic situation when his girlfriend committed suicide while playing with New Orleans. His coach at the time was Monty Williams. And I said to Ryan, I say Monty Williams, and you say what? Oh, man. There's not one word I could say. There's a a hundred, but... I would say absolutely the best leader I've ever been around in my life. Just a rock. He was a foundation, solid rock for me during the the most difficult part of my life with the loss of, of my girlfriend at the time and her suicide. And there's no stronger person on the planet that I've ever been around than him. Obviously, he's a great coach and he showed that. It showed that especially during these past, you know, these recent years, but He's um, just such a strong Christian man, and, and uh, uh, just him picking you up with his with his one arm. I remember, I like dur- during that during that time, it was hard for me to even get around, and, and um, <laughs> you know, especially right after it happened, walk. And I called him first when it all happened, uh, when the suicide actually happened, because I had nobody in town, and so he comes and he picks me up at midnight one bare arm picks me up along with our security guard. And there was no better person in that time in the entire world to pick me up than him. And uh, it's hard to explain that unless you actually experience it, but there's really not words. It's just his demeanor, his presence, his love. And I could go on and on and on, but that guy was there for me during the most difficult time of my life when a coach could have called somebody else or just, you know, he, he was there for me. He was there for me many nights, let's just say. So I'm, I'm very grateful for him, man. The death of your girlfriend back then, how did that change your life? Oh, man, in so many ways it changed my life. I didn't think I would ever be able to play basketball again, but it, it strengthened me. It helped me grow into – it helped me grow into a man, actually. I mean, I kind of went about life. I was, I think I was, what, 24 or 25 at the time, but I kind of went about life up until that point, sort of like 
oblivious to any issues, any problems, nothing bad in my childhood ever happened. I mean, you, in growing up in Eldorado Hills, as you know, it's, it's a very safe, friendly, um, you know, no problems neighborhood. And I didn't have any deaths in my family. I, you know, life was pretty easy. And then obviously, like I said, I accomplished my dream. I go to the NBA, I travel, I get traded, I get a, a contract to go play for even longer, go to New Orleans. And then this happens. And it's like, the world isn't as innocent as I had always thought, you know? So it made me, it definitely made, forced me to, um, to make the circle of people around me a lot smaller. It helped me to realize kind of what I need in life rather than just wandering around and doing whatever I wanted or just trying to have this fun, happy life. It's like, no, you actually, you know, life is serious. This stuff happens and man, it changed me in a, in a whole lot of ways, but it definitely made me uh, appreciate my family just that much more. And, you know, it took a lot of courage for me to get back to playing basketball and it, it gave me that passion and it helped me understand the realization that, you know, once I got on that court, it was the one place, it was my safe place where I could get away and um, not think about it all, all day long. You know, I could go on the court and be at home on the court. So it really gave me this crazy love for the game at that point. I will never forget the time that I interviewed you courtside before a game and mm-hmm. you were going over everything and it was a very emotional conversation. It was a very impactful conversation. And then about an hour and a half later, before the game, I'm over near my broadcast position and a man comes up to me and he's got tears coming down his eyes and he said, I just want to let you know that the interview you had with Ryan Anderson today, I think saved my life. He said, I was right mm-hmm. where his girlfriend was in Gia. And he goes, I was actually thinking of ending my life. And after listening to Ryan on your show, I have a completely new outlook. And I actually said, hang on here. And you were out warming up on the court. And I said, Ryan, it would be very important if you would just say hello to the And you said, absolutely. And you spent a minute or two with this person. And I was trying to think as that was going on, how many other people you have impacted in a positive way by sharing your story? And I'm convinced after that night and after our interview and after talking with that man that it has to be numerous. And so if we can always look at a positive coming out of a negative, I really believe that you impacted people's lives. I really believe that in my heart. Wow, man. I really appreciate that. That story gives me the chills, even though I... I absolutely remember that. And I mean, that's what it's about, right? It's about helping even just one person. And that, that I sort of, you know, that was sort of the mission, like you said, just having a, what do you do from that? You know, that, that was kind of my, after I went through, you know, months and months of trying to uh, ask the questions of why and, and, just get over the emotions of it all. What do we do with that now? You know? So that was, that was the, that was the next step in my mind of my mission to sort of not, cause you can't just forget about something like that. So either you just keep thinking about it and get depressed about it 
or you try to do something different and there, you know, you, you try to change something or help somebody. So, I mean, just to hear one person is, is impacted or even just hears the story and understands how much that can impact a person is just means the world. So, I mean, regardless, no matter how many people were helped or even just, you know, second guess doing something to themselves, it, it was uh, an awesome, it, it turned into almost a privilege in my mind to have God give me, for that to happen to me, because I had a platform to actually have people hear me, you know, and to be able to talk about that. And it does, not a lot of people have a platform to talk about suicide. And I felt like I, in a way, I was the only guy in the world that had that platform. So it was my duty to talk about it and help people. But I appreciate you saying that, Grant. I mean, that during that time, it, it was, uh, I was on a mission, man. So to have one person be impacted, man, still means a lot. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, seriously, that's all I can say on that. I'm so blessed to be able to do this. Uh, I'm so blessed for your support as we wrap up 2022. Those were some of the interviews that really stuck out to me. There were many more, but due to time constraints, I was not able to take excerpts from all of them. I just picked some that I thought you would really enjoy. But, you know, listen to Chris Carino, listen to Ryan Anderson, Real Life Stories, that's what this is all about, and I'm grateful for all of the guests that took the time to join me in 2022. It is now time for our Crowd Ultra Q&A. It is brought to you by Fosters and Paws, a group of animal advocates. They work primarily with dogs in shelters, and if you go to their website, they do some amazing things, including working with young children to teach them the lifelong benefit of working with animals. They're looking for fosters. They're looking for adopters, and again, I encourage you to go to the website, fostersandpaws.org. Uh, they are awesome with a capital A. Again, they truly are animal advocates. That's fostersandpaws.org. All right. Reed wants to know, how was your Christmas weekend? It was fine. You know, no complaints at all, Reed. It was great. Dan wants to know, did I ever think Derek Carr was a good enough quarterback to take the Raiders deep into the playoffs? No, I didn't because I think he's too inconsistent. And I'm going to say the same thing about Dak Prescott. You know, Dak Prescott to me is Derek Carr. He looks really good at times and really bad at others. And I want my quarterback to be more consistent. So, no, I never thought that, Dan. I never thought. Julian wants to know, would you rather have Brock Purdy or Baker Mayfield? I would say I'd rather have Purdy because I've already seen Mayfield play a number of years. And I've seen what he can do and what he can't do. So far with Purdy, I like what I've seen. So I would go with him, Julian. But it's a very interesting question. Brad wants to know, now that Trevor Bauer has been reinstated, will we see him play next season? I think we will, although it won't be with the Dodgers. I do think so because teams need good pitching. He's a really good pitcher. And look at all the other players that have uh, done things that you raise your eyebrows over. Now, when I say this about Trevor Bauer, I'm not going to really get into this other than if it was consensual, okay, as sexually deviant as he appears to be, I'm okay with it. Even though it is bizarre, uh, if it's consent, and, and again, that's if. If it's consensual between him and another human being, then it doesn't bother me. What bothers me is if it was not consensual, then no, I don't think he should ever play again. I don't even think he should be walking around. But if it were consensual, and again, no charges, all right, they threw it out of court, then yeah, he should be allowed to play. Absolutely. It may not be my cup of tea, but as long as they both agreed to what they were doing, then I'm okay with it. 
Mike wants to know, how do I expect Adams to handle Carr's benching? I know you wrote this, Mike, before we heard from Devontae Adams. I mean, he was very, very disappointed. Brendan wants to know, is Luca's recent triple-double the top five performance? Brendan, why do we have to rate everything? You know, why can't we just enjoy it for what it was? And that was a great performance. Neil wants to know, is there any possibility Terrell Owens can still make the NFL at 49 like he's hoping to do so? N-O, Neil. That's a capital N and a capital O. Hunter wants to know, do I think J.J. Watt would retire next season if the Cardinals were better? I don't, Hunter. I really don't. Christian wants to know, did you ever celebrate Christmas with members of the Kings? Yeah, many times. You know, we flew out a lot of times on uh, Christmas uh, afternoon, and I was at the Tisdale's house uh, for Christmas one year. And so, yeah, absolutely. Definitely did. Again, go to CrowdUltra.com, and maybe I'll answer your question on my next podcast. It's time for Brent. And today's rant's brought to you by Zoom 180, a revolutionary new flashlight in mass production. And when you see it, you're going to go, Napes, how do I order one of those? Stay tuned. I'll give you all the details. I don't really have a rant other than this. All right. Here's my wish for 2023. We calm down as a society. We start canceling everybody. We start, you know, uh, uh, saying, no, you can't talk. We don't want to hear what you have to say because you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican or, you know, I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat. And so based on what you say, I don't agree with you. And based on what you say, you don't agree with me. You know, we need to come to the table. We need to have better communication in this country. We need to stop canceling people over stupid things, okay? Just because you don't like the way it sounds or because you're set in your ways. That's my wish for 2023. Come together. Be a better society. All right? Be more communicative. All right? Learn how to talk to one another without labeling and without stereotyping. All right? That's what I would hope for in 2023. And that is my rant for today. That's my last podcast of 2022. Happy New Year, everybody. And thank you so much for your support. So long. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.